take your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue our series. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in just a moment in verse 8. We have been talking about, or Peter has been talking about, this wild world in which we live. A place that from time to time can be distressingly difficult. And of course for these early New Testament Christians, they were beginning to experience the marginalization that often characterizes the lives of Christians who are living in places where Christianity is not widely accepted. We here in America have, for the most part, uh, enjoyed uh, acceptance uh, even the designation of being mainstream. I, I think that uh, gradually that uh, description may be changing. But uh, <clears throat> for Christians all over the world, and really from the beginning of the church, uh, Christians have, have suffered uh, just to live out their faith uh, obediently before the Lord. And again, as they have suffered, uh, they have uh, faced the fears and anxieties that often accompany that kind of of suffering. Paul describes the Christian life of his day uh, in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body, our body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested. In our body. So whether we're looking at Peter or whether we're reading the words of Paul or really looking at any text from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the people of God have always been a people who have served the Lord faithfully at their own peril. Uh, and I believe that we're beginning to, to see that and understand that. And I guess what I would encourage you with today is if there is some sense of sacrifice, some sense of suffering in your own life that you can directly attribute to your walk with the Lord. Bible says you're blessed. You're blessed. Don't, don't think that because of that persecution or that tribulation or that difficulty that, that something is wrong. No, as a matter of fact, you may be experiencing that very hardship because of the right things that you are doing as you pursue your relationship with the Lord. Peter, of course, has gone to great lengths to teach us that the Christian life, not only is it difficult and often distressing, but on top of all of that, we are to joyfully submit to the authorities that often bring that very distress and difficulty into our lives. The Christian life is a life that is characterized by submission. Now, we, we don't like that word. Uh, we don't like to submit. Uh, and yet, we know that that is what God has, has indeed called us to. That is what our life is to be characterized by. Submission to authority, even unjust authorities. Uh, so when you look at Peter, and you look at that passage we just read in 2 Corinthians, Christian life doesn't always seem to be an appealing life, one that we would readily sign up for. But today, in this passage we're going to look at, Peter is going to encourage us to love the life that God has called us to. We're supposed to love this life. Do we sacrifice? Absolutely. Will we experience suffering? Absolutely. But are we to live lives of despair? Absolutely not. We're to live lives full of joy, full of hope, uh, 
full of encouragement. We're to love the life that God has called us to. We're to love this life of difficulty, persecution, submission. Uh, and of course, what Peter's going to do in these next few verses, he's going to provide us with the tools, at least if we will heed them, uh, that we can use to love life in the wild. And I, I just want to point out right now as we begin to read, he, he begins this passage of Scripture with the word, finally. That does not mean that he's through. Uh, that word really could be translated now to sum things up. He's about to kind of wrap up what he's been talking about for the last several passages. He's going to wrap up the teaching that Neil has shared with us over the last several messages in this series. Uh, that's what that word finally means. It doesn't mean that he's through. It's like, it's like the young boy who was sitting next, and some of you maybe have heard this joke before, perhaps others of you have not. The little boy was sitting next to his father in church, and he noticed that the pastor kept looking at his wristwatch. So he asked his dad, he said, Daddy, what does it mean when the pastor looks at his watch? And the man leaned over to his son, he said, not a thing in the world, son, not a thing in the world. <laughs> Peter is not finished, <clears throat> but he's going to sum up some of his thoughts that he has been bringing to us. Uh, the text that we're going to consider this morning uh, again, sums up everything that Peter has been writing, really up to this point, but especially since chapter 2, verse 13. And notice also that he is summing this up for all of you. Uh, he has spoken to citizens of countries who are living perhaps under corrupt governments, submit to that corrupt pagan Roman Government. He's talked to slaves submitting to masters, even if they are harsh and unfair masters. He's spoken to wives about the submission that they should demonstrate to their husbands, even if their husbands are unbelievers, how they should live for the Lord and do good and perhaps win <clears throat> their husbands without even a word being spoken. So you may or may not fall into any one of those categories. But now he says for all of you, everyone. So everyone in the room needs to Listen up. This is a word for us today. We need to pay close attention to what is being said here. And as a matter of fact, shouldn't we always pay close attention to what the Word of God says? You know, I've been very pleased uh, to hear some comments that have been made recently uh, about our church and specifically about the way our church teaches. Uh, I had the privilege of corresponding with a, a new person, a new attendee uh, in our church, and uh, was pleased to have them say to me, we're very thankful that you don't, and they, it was in quotation marks, play it safe with the Word of God. We tell the truth from the pulpit. We say what God says. Uh, and, and it's wonderful when people recognize that. God hasn't called us to play it safe. He's called us to preach the whole counsel of God. We also heard recently that someone who's been visiting with us has said, you guys don't handle the Word of God like other places I've been. And again, what an encouragement to know that we take the scripture and we dig into it. Uh, that's what we have been called to do. This is God's word for all of us. And we need to pay careful attention this morning. So if you would, I'm going <clears> to <throat> ask you to stand with me. We haven't done this for a while, but I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word. Uh, I believe that if you do not have a copy of the Bible in your hand, you can read along uh, with the words that are up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, we'll read down through verse 12. Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, <clears throat> sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, 
Bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and then he cites Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at this text. Father, we are thankful today for your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive this message that you have for all of us. There's not one of us in this room today does not hear that does not hear need to hear the words that you have said. Uh, so help us, Father, to, to hear, to obey, to determine that our lives will be characterized by the very things uh, that Peter is sharing with the, his generation of believers. Uh, we love you, Father. We thank you for speaking the truth to us, uh, for sharing the truth with us. And now, Lord, I pray that uh, we would receive it gladly, rejoicing in all that you have said and all that we have been commanded to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Loving life in the wild. A life of submission. <clears throat> a life, <clears throat> excuse me, fraught with difficulty. How can we love this life that God has called us to? Well, Peter tells us how we are to do that. And he begins <clears throat> by simply sharing the character or the nature uh, of love. He, he does that in verse 8. Finally, all of you. And listen to these adjectives that he stacks up here of what love is to look like. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. If you want a good picture of what love is, I mean, normally we would turn to 1 Corinthians 13, right? We'd read Paul's description of love. But Peter gives us a beautiful description of what love looks like right here. And really, <clears throat> what it looks like <clears throat> as we relate to those around us. And of course, at the center of these five adjectives are those words, brotherly love. I just want to start with them because I believe they're at the center for a reason. Uh, we're to love one another. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us that the way that other people, people outside of the church, will know that we are truly his disciples is when they see us loving one another. So this idea of brotherly love, he's talking about the kind of love that we are to exhibit to one another within the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And as we've shared over the years, <clears throat> the relationship that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ, the fact that we are all in Christ, that we are a part of the body of Christ, that's really a closer relationship than even blood relationships that we may have with family that does not know Jesus. So we're talking about the most intimate of relationships and, and the love, the affection, this is that word phileo, where we get our word Philadelphia, brotherly love. It, it's a word that speaks of the affection that we're to have for the family of God. I've heard over the years, you know, people say things like this. Well, I love Jesus, but I don't have much use for church. Well, that's really a contradiction in terms. You can't love Jesus and really then turn around and say, but I don't have any use for the church. I love Jesus, but I don't love his people. I don't love the people that he died for. That's, that's, that's absurd. If you really love Jesus, you'll love the people of God. And of course, that brotherly love will be reflected in the way that you live, in the way that you relate 
uh, to one another here in this family. And of course, our family extends far beyond this church. We have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. And, and really what, what Peter and, and what the Bible teaches us is the kind of love that we are called to as Christians is a love that only Christians can really manifest in their lives. We can only love one another the way that we're supposed to love one another because Jesus first loved us. If we were not in Christ, we would be incapable of manifesting this kind of love. Matter of fact, we wouldn't even desire to. So, we're to have a brotherly love for one another. We're to demonstrate a love that can be clearly seen, that really can only be demonstrated by the body of Christ the church. And that's why it'll be noticed. That's why others will take notice because it'll be a love like they've never seen before. A love that they have a hard time understanding. So this love, this brotherly love, I'm going to just go through the other four here very quickly. First of all, it's characterized by a unity of mind. Those words could be literally translated same think. Now, Peter Peter is in no way implying that we should agree on everything, all right? We don't. Again, the closest relationship here in this church, perhaps, is the relationship between a husband and a wife. Are there any couples in here that agree on everything? Are there any that agree on anything? Peter, nor is any biblical author, implying that as Christians we should agree on every fine point of theology, that we should agree on every political issue, that we should agree on every social issue, that we should agree uh, across the board on anything. But what he is saying to us is this, that we should be committed to living together without division, in spite of our differences and our diversity. That's what the scriptures teach. It's not that we will always agree on everything, but we are determined, we are committed to living without division in spite of the differences in diversity. Christians should live together and serve together in harmony. We hosted a funeral service here not too many weeks ago, and there was a man here who I don't think had ever been in this building uh, before. He was related to the person that we were memorializing. And he said, you know, as I was driving into town trying to find this church, he said, I realized there's a church on every corner. I said, yeah, there is. He said, why is that? I said, because we Christians just can't agree on anything. (laughs) I mean, we have a hard time doing this, right? I mean, it sounds simple. Be unified. Be in harmony with one another. Think the same way about things, but we don't. And I think one of the reasons that we don't is because we really are not committed to thinking the way the Bible says we should think. If we think the way Scripture says we should think, if we think the way God thinks, let me tell you, we'll be united. So again, this word does not mean that we should agree on everything, but it does mean that there should be an agreeableness about us. Some people, that they're just contentious. They're just argumentative. They don't want to agree. Matter of fact, they'll take either side of the issue just so they can argue with you. But that's not the way it's supposed to be for Christians. There's to be an agreeableness, a unity of mind. That's the very nature of love. And then I'm going to skip down to that last adjective, a humble mind. Unity of mind and a humble mind. Let me tell you, we'll never be united in mind if we're not humble in mind. 
And the idea of humility here is, of course, that we are never to view ourselves as superior to others. And isn't that where a lot of our disagreements come from, our division? Well, I just know better than you. I just know more than you. Humility doesn't say things like that, doesn't think things like that. So we are never to view ourselves as superior to others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather in humility we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. That's what Paul says in Philippians. Again, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To count, and we don't even think that sounds right. Well, I, we should treat people as significant as ourselves. Paul says no. Writing under the inspiration of the Word of God, in humility, we count others as more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. And let me just say this. I know Neil went into great lengths over the last several weeks to talk about the Greco-Roman culture. Uh, in the Greco-Roman culture, humility was not considered a virtue. They considered assertiveness, almost aggressive assertiveness, self-serving assertiveness. That was considered a virtue in the Greco-Roman culture. So again, as Christians, to demonstrate the humility that Christ, of course, exhibited in his own life, you were looked down upon, considered less than. Uh, and I believe, to a certain degree, the same thing is true in our day and time. But nonetheless, as Christians... We should be harmonious in our relationship, agreeable. And the only way that we can truly do that is by being humble. Uh, we're also to be a sympathetic people. The word sympathy there simply means that we suffer together. We demonstrate compassion for one another. And then there's a big difference between compassion or sympathy and pity. When we pity someone, we just kind of look at their situation and say, wow, too bad for them. But to sympathize, to have compassion, we, we put ourselves in the midst of that suffering of our brother and sister in Christ. We, we suffer along with them. And we seek to eliminate as much of their suffering as it's possible for us to do. We suffer together. In Romans 12, Paul writes these words. He says, let love be genuine. Again, this is what love looks like. This is what genuine love looks like. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In other words... Let's do this thing together. We serve the Lord together. We love the Lord together. We minister the gospel together. We worship together. We, we are together in this family of God. And so we suffer together and we rejoice together. Hebrews 4.15 teaches us that Jesus, our great high priest, he was able to sympathize with us, right? I mean, it's hard for us to believe, but the writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. Jesus sympathizes with us. Certainly, as we seek to follow Jesus, we ought to be able to sympathize with one another. And then, of course, closely related to that word sympathy is the fourth adjective, a tender heart. You know, when you live in a, a wild world of persecution, intimidation, pain, uh, it's easy to grow hard, to grow calloused, uh, especially toward the, the situation of other people. We become so self-absorbed, so, so focused on our own troubles that, that we kind of become hardened, oblivious to the needs of those around us. And of course, that's not at all what love looks like. 
Love is outward looking. Love is looking for ways to sacrifice and be a blessing to others, uh, even if that doesn't mean any necessary blessing being returned to us. So we're to be tender-hearted, not hard-hearted, not calloused. As Christians, we're to be actively concerned for the feelings of others. Now, let me tell you, that doesn't always come easy for people. I mean, there are some people who are, as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that there is a gift, a spiritual gift of mercy. Some people have that spiritual gift of mercy. They, they are, it, it seems easy for them to, to have compassion, to be tender-hearted towards others. Uh, not all of us, and I'll include myself in this list, uh, is that easy for. We have to work at it. Uh, we have to think about it. We have to consider others and be actively concerned not only for their circumstances, but for the feelings that have resulted from those circumstances. We're to be affected by their pain and moved again to help relieve their pain. So that's what love looks like according to Peter. Again, it's not an exhaustive list or an exhaustive description. But if we're going to truly love one another and, and ultimately love this life that God has given to us, set us aside for, then we're going to have to see these things being manifested in our lives. The unity of mind, the sympathy, the brotherly love, the tender heart, the humble mind, this character, this biblical character of love should be manifested in each of us. And then look at verse 9 there. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And, and really that word bless is the, the heart of this message. If we're going to love the life that God has called us to, we're going to have to bless. I think all too often we, we want to be blessed, right? And often we even think of the Christian life as a blessed life, and indeed it is. But again, we cannot focus our attention every day on the blessings that we expect to come our way. We should be a people who bless those around us, blessing the Lord, blessing others, loving the Lord, loving others. Again, the two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be a blessing to people. You want to be blessed in your life? You want to be happy? You want to, be, you want to love this life that God has called you to? Well, be a blessing. Bless. Others, we're called to bless, to, to this kind of, of love, the calling of love. Romans 12, 14 says this. Again, it's amazing if you get a chance this afternoon, go home and, and read Romans chapter 12 and this passage of Scripture that, that I've been quoting from. It begins in verse 9 with the words, let love be genuine. Again, it's, it's Paul's description of love. And read all the way down through the end of that chapter. It's amazing how it parallels with what Peter is saying here. But Romans 12, 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In other words, our natural initial reaction when someone hurts us, well, we want to hurt them back, right? Christian, don't do that. That's not what you were called to. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In Matthew 5, Jesus says it this way, and this is so hard. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
This is not something that we see demonstrated in the world in which we live. And if you just follow along with the cultural tide, you're going to find yourself retaliating. Cursing rather than blessing. Hurting rather than encouraging. I mean, that's the way of the world that we live in. But it's not the way of the family that we've been birthed into. We're in the family of God, and we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Christians are not to retaliate. That's the idea. And, of course, we know all the scriptures, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We're not to carry out vengeance. That's not our role. God will do that. I know we look at the world sometimes and even some of the suffering that we ourselves endure personally and we think, you know, it's just not fair. These bad guys are getting away with their bad stuff and here I am trying to do my best and I'm having a hard time getting ahead. Let me tell you, God's going to make it all right one day. And we can trust him to do that. That's why we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's why we bless those who persecute you. Uh, we bless and do not curse them. And not only are we to do evil or not do evil to those who do evil to us, in other words, we're not to return in kind the evil that is done to us, but, but it says that we're also not to return reviling for reviling. That word, maybe insult for insult. You know, we're, we're coming up on an election cycle. And one of the things that you're going to hear a lot of among our politicians is insults. Politicians insult their competitors. And then typically their competitors turn around and insult them. And, and, and it becomes such a normative thing in the political world that if we're not careful, we can think that's just the way that it's supposed to be. And it's not. We're not to return insult for insult. People may indeed speak harshly to us. People have spoken harshly to us and of us. But that does not give us the right to then speak harshly to them, to insult them in return. No, we're not to do that. On the contrary, he says, we're to bless. People may do evil to us. What did, what did Joseph say to his brothers? What you did to me, you meant for evil. <clears throat> you conceived evil against me. You wanted to hurt me, even to kill me. And finally decided you couldn't kill me, so you just sold me into slavery, where I ended up in prison. But now, I know. What you did, you did for evil. What, an accident? You meant it for evil. People will sometimes mean evil for, against us, toward us. That doesn't give us the right to perpetrate evil against them, to hit them back because they hit us. That's not the way Christians are supposed to live their lives. When people treat us wrong, you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to do good to them. We're supposed to do good for them. Again, we don't see this in our world, and that's why it will be noticed when you do it. People will say, what's wrong with that guy? He just got slammed. And he just shrugged it off, and he's even doing good to those who slammed him. That's what Jesus would do. That's what Jesus did. So we do good to those who do evil to us. We speak well of those who speak insultingly of us. We don't return evil for evil, insult for insult. That's what it means to bless. We do good to others. We speak well of others. This word bless is the word that we get our English word eulogy from. 
which means to speak well of someone, to say good things about them. Now, I know for some people it may be hard to find some good things to say, but you keep looking, you'll find something. Speak well of one another. You know, even, even Christian brothers and sisters, it's amazing to me. We get crossways over some disagreement, whether it's doctrinal or political, and, and we begin to call each other the worst things, to speak so badly of one another. Church shouldn't be that way. That's a sin against Almighty God. So if we're to bless our enemies and those who persecute us, certainly we're to do good and speak well of the people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So we bless. And, and notice this is what, what Peter says, to this you were called. In other words, let me just say it this way, this is not a suggestion. This is the summons of Almighty God. You are where you are today in the family of God because God saved you. <clears throat> he set you apart for Himself. He bought you with a price is what the Bible says. You belong to Him. And He says, look, don't you curse when you're cursed. Don't you hit back when you're hit. Don't you do evil when evil is done to you. Rather, you bless. That's what the Christian life is to be characterized by a people who bless others who are a blessing to others to this you were called it's a serious statement and of course the wonderful thing is because it's God that we're dealing with God who has called us to this life Peter says you bless because to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing when we're obedient to God God blesses us. I mean, that's just a truth that you can't deny. When we are obedient to the Lord, when we, when we submit to His authority and, and, and engage the world in a manner that He has instructed us to engage the world, our lives are blessed. And that doesn't mean that we won't ever have trouble or difficulty or tragedy. We will. But it just means that God blesses us. And what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing that is. We, we can bless others because in return, God blesses us. And then Peter does something that I just want to point out to you. He cites, I've already mentioned, he cites Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. But the very first word in that 10th verse is the word for. Peter is summing up his teaching over the last several chapters. And he's given us this description of the character of love and the calling that God has set us apart for, the life that we are to live as a result of being God's children. And now he cites Psalm 34. So in other words, what he's saying, if there's any argument out there, any disagreement, let me just cite a passage of Scripture. When Peter cited this Old Testament text, he was in essence saying, all right, listen to this. I'm going to cite the 34th Psalm to back up what I've just been saying. It's settled right here. This settles the, This should settle the matter. And again, church... We'll sometimes have disagreements about things, but you know, when we can point to a passage of Scripture, it ought to settle things for us. God's Word should override any disagreement that we might have, and that's what Peter's doing here. To settle this issue, let me just, let me just quote, he says, let me just cite Psalm 34. I'm going to cite the Word of God. This is what God's Word says. These aren't just my words. This is God's Word. 
And then he says this, he says, he, he cites these verses, whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceitful, uh, from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What Peter says here now is, this is what love looks like in practice. If you want to experience the love of God, if you want to love this life that God has called you to, there are some things that you need to do, some practical things. And again, not difficult to understand this, this desire to love life, to see good days. By the way, doesn't everybody want that? And, and the answer is yes. Every human being that has ever walked on this earth has desired to see good days, to love life. It really means, we could sum it up like this. We could say, everybody wants to be happy. We pursue happiness. The decisions we make every day, we make consciously or unconsciously because we think that's what's going to be best for us, most satisfying. It's what's going to make us happy, and that's okay. But we need to pursue happiness in the way that Scripture Prescribes. And so Peter tells us, you want to be happy, this is how you have to conduct yourself. And it's real simple. Look what he says there. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Love doesn't lie. And if you're going to love life, don't be a liar. Don't lie. Don't be a deceiver. Jesus Christ described himself as the truth. I am the truth. Of course, Satan, how is he described by Jesus? He's the father of lies. So when we lie, who are we aligning ourselves with? If you want to live good, a good life, have good days, don't lie. And don't speak half-truths. Uh, you know, we've become experts at just sharing enough of the truth that we can convince you to take our side. We don't share the whole truth. But Christians are not to speak lies or half-truths. They're to speak the truth, and we're to speak the truth in love. That's what love does, and that will lead to a love of life. Pretty simple. Tell the truth. Be honest. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Love refrains from evil and practices good. Again, pretty simple, right? Don't do what's wrong. Do what's right. I talked about this in a message not too many weeks ago. There are things that we are to refrain from, and there are things that we're responsible to do. And that's the idea here. We refrain from evil. We're responsible to do the good things in life. You do, you live like that, you'll love your life. You'll see good days. Love seeks and pursues peace. Again, pretty simple. Hebrews 12, 14 says it this way. Strive for peace with everyone. You know, I think sometimes we make up our mind, you know, there are just people out there, I don't care about them, and I don't care about living in peace with them. That's not a biblical perspective. The writer of Hebrews, again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, strive for peace with everyone. Paul, again, in Romans 12, that same passage of Scripture, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's not just talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Certainly it begins there, but it extends beyond the walls of this church, beyond the bounds of this family. We are to conduct our lives honestly. We're to do good. We're to pursue 
peace. And by the way, both of those words, seek and pursue, they speak of intensity, really aggressiveness. If there's something that you want to be intense about, intensely pursue peace. Aggressively pursue unity, love. That's what we're called to do. That's how love conducts itself. And of course, that kind of conduct will result in loving the life that God has given to us. And then lastly, Paul, or Peter, gives us a, a motivation, the compulsion of love. Why should we do all this? <clears throat> Why does it matter? You know, sometimes we strive to do the right thing, and it doesn't seem that anybody notices. Let me tell you, somebody notices. God sees everything. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God sees everything. He knows everything, right? He's omnipresent. There's no place you can go away from God. He's omniscient. There's nothing that you've ever done or said or thought that God isn't aware of. He knows. And we just need to come to terms with that. God sees all. He knows all. And so what should we do? Well, we should determine in light of that to live righteously. His eyes are on the righteous. And by the way, this description that Peter's giving us, or really that the psalmist is giving us, about the eyes of the Lord, it speaks of his watchful care. God's watching over us. Again, there's never a day, there's never a moment in a day, there's never a place that you may be, there's never a circumstance that you find yourself in that somehow God is unaware of. Oh, you've slipped his mind, or that you've gone unnoticed. I know sometimes we think that about people. We think they don't care, they don't notice, they don't see me. God sees. He always sees. He always knows. So because of that, we should determine to live as the righteous people that we are in Christ. And, and he says as a result of that that his ears are open to their prayer. Or really, his ears being open to our prayer is what it means for his eyes to be on us, his watchful care over us. He's watching. He's listening. And when we cry out to him for help, Guess what? He helps us. We will enjoy the satisfaction and the comfort of knowing that God hears and responds to our prayer. Way back in Psalm 34, let me just turn there. I want to read this. This is a verse that, that, that Peter doesn't, doesn't quote here. But verse 16, uh, pardon me, verse 17 of Psalm 34. The psalmist writes, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. I mean, what a comfort that should be to us. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. I mean, you can go to multiple texts within the scriptures and you can find this assurance that when we cry out to God as his child, God hears and he moves in response to our cries to meet our need. And nothing is too difficult for our God. We sang it just a moment ago. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we could ask or even imagine. That's the God that hears our cry. That should compel us, motivate us to live in a manner consistent with the word of God. Peter says it this way just a few chapters over in verse 6 of chapter 5. He says this. He says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. That's the God whose eyes are upon us, whose ears are open 
to our prayer. What an encouragement. What a comfort that should be to us today. Whatever difficulty you may be experiencing, whatever suffering you may be enduring, you can know right now, God knows. He sees, He hears, He knows, He's listening, and He's moving in your behalf. We can cast our cares upon the one who cares for us. God's eyes of watchful care are upon His righteous ones. His ears are open to our prayer. What a blessing. What a prayer of comfort. And then finally, the warning that's here. He says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If God seeing and being aware of our lives and sympathizing with us in our troubles, hearing our prayer, moving on our behalf, if that's evidence of God's blessing or favor upon our lives, well then the opposite of that is when he speaks of his face. We can either have God's favor or we can have God's face and the face of the Lord here speaks of his judgment. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Uh, Again, a verse that the psalmist or Peter didn't cite Verse 16, he only cites half of it. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The psalmist continues that verse with these words, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Pretty serious, huh? The face of the Lord against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Actions have consequences. When we live in obedience, faith, we experience the blessings of God in tremendous ways. When we disobey, when we sin, we experience the face of His judgment. Again, as Christians, we can never be separated from God again. Not even our sin can separate us from God and His love. But let me tell you, A life of obedience, a life of sacrificial service is far better than a life of reckless rebellion and disobedience. Things will just go better for you, I can assure you. So, here's the question. Do you want to love this life that God has called you to? You want to get up every morning excited about what God has in store for you? You want to see good days? And again, we even express that to one another, right? Hey, have a good day. You want to have good days? You want to stack one good day upon the other so that at the end of your life you can look back and you can say, you know, I've had a good life. Well, then heed the word of Scripture. Love the Lord. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. It won't be easy, but it'll be the most fulfilling life, the most satisfying life you can ever live.